Hello folks, welcome back and if you're a new listener, welcome to the show. You're listening to the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Now before we start today, I just wanted to let you know that you are a high performance human, although you might not realise it. The concept of high performance is described as a measurable state where an individual, as you, consistently performs at a higher level of operational success compared with most of their peers within that same environment at a particular time. And it's relative, not absolute. It's not just in athletic performances though. However, if you are an endurance athlete and you train or compete regularly, please don't just compare yourself to those other athletes in your age group. Instead, think about other folks of your age and what they're doing and how they're performing across a whole range of aspects. And compared to them, I can tell you this, you are operating at a very high level. I appreciate that even if you are at that level, you might still want to improve. And if you do, then we'd love to help you. It might be sleep, nutrition, your fitness, personal relationships, work habits, so much more. I've currently got availability to take on a couple of people. And my wife, Beth, who's a certified life coach, has availability as well. So depending on what you're looking to focus on, we've got you covered. And you can find contact details in the show notes below. Now on the podcast this week... I'm chatting with another age group athlete who I consider to be a high performance human. Matthew Spooner is in his early 50s and he's still getting faster as a long distance triathlete. If you're a regular on some of the triathlon pages on Facebook, then I'm sure you've come across Matt's post as he shares his experience of training and racing with the aim of helping other athletes less experienced than himself. In this conversation, we chat about his life in Switzerland, finding the perfect environment to live and train, making a conscious decision to prioritise training and not get sucked into the corporate work trap of long working hours, building consistency into his training and the challenge of completing Ironman Wales just three weeks after finishing the 4,000km transcontinental bike race. So buckle up and get your notes books ready because there's a lot of great stuff in this conversation. Oh, Welcome to the show, Matthew or Matt Spooner? Ha, either Matt is fine. Okay, Matt. Well, thank you for being here. I have probably had conversations with you on Facebook. You're quite prolific on there on some of the training for Ironman sites. And uh, um, it's been interesting to see your progress over the years from afar. So I'm pleased that we've got a chance to chat about that now on the show. Yeah, and and I sort of uh, I spend quite a lot of time on Facebook um, sharing my journey and and really trying to help other people who are going on some sort of similar journey. So there's there's various forums where I'm pretty active, and I know we've we've chatted a bit on Facebook in the past. Mm. Uh, I think we were chatting the other day because uh, there's, there's a couple of people who are quite um, dogmatic in their approach, aren't there? And um, <laughs> I think you called somebody out about something, which we, um, one of the events you've done, we might, we might get onto that later, but, um, yeah, I find social media frustrating and amazing in, in equal parts. I think, um, mostly because of just the approach of some people feel like it's, uh, it's their forum and nobody else counts. Yeah. And you, you have to be really careful, I think on Facebook to try and, or any social media to try and, Try and be be constructive, um, mm-hmm. whereas I think a lot of people, as you say, are very dogmatic, and it's you know their approach, and that's the only approach that is uh, that's viable. And you know, people like us, and you're, obviously you're a coach, and so you've brought a lot more experience. But um, people like me who've been through a journey over you know the last you know ten years or so, um, 
you know that that experience um, is very useful to some people if you approach it in a create in a constructive way. Yeah, and I've uh, you know perhaps when I was younger I would give out advice. Now I found it's easy to ask questions and um, see what people. But so many people misread the posts, don't they? And then think, oh, this is what they're saying. This is what they're asking, and they, you know, and then they give their opinion um, based on this worked for me. You should try this and. Uh, um, but they, like you say, they've got one path and they're not prepared to listen to another path. So I particularly find if you start talking about nutrition and polarized training and HIIT training are very tribal and uh, can can cause some real ructions if you're not careful. Yeah, those conversations can sometimes be fun. Yeah, they are, as long as you let it be fun and not get too, too upset yeah. by it. <laughs> anyway, um, let, let's we're going to talk about your triathlon journey. Um, you were kind enough to send me a, a bio, um, sort of giving me some background. So let's zoom right back to the beginning. Um, judging by what I read, you you were active when you were younger, and I was interested to see that you had nothing to do with swim, bike, or run. Although water would have been a key part, you were a windsurfer. Yeah, so that was so. I used to live in in the south coast of England on uh, in Weymouth, uh, which is actually the home of the National Sailing Academy, mm-hmm. and. Um, I was a, and my father was one of the, I guess, one of the first people windsurfing in the country in the 19, in the 1970s. And I sort of picked up windsurfing and through the 1980s and the early 90s, um, that was my, you know, my all consuming passion. I was windsurfing, you know, whenever the wind was, was blowing, I would be out there in all conditions, didn't matter how cold it was. Uh, if there was wind, I would be out windsurfing. And um, I was a, um, you know, in, in in my late teens, I was a pretty competitive windsurfer. I was sort of like a, the lower end of the professional fleet of, of windsurfers. And, you know, and, you know ha- as you are when you're 17, 18, had aspirations of, you know, becoming a, a, a professional windsurfer. Um Luckily, I decided that that was not the uh, the, the correct path for me. Uh, I think in retrospect, but yeah, that was my. I had great fun, and and it's something that I've actually continued to do and still uh, compete on windsurfing, um, at, you know, reasonably competitively to you know still today. You, you live in Switzerland now, but I know you live in Zug, which is right by the lake. There, do you, do you, is it a big windsurfing scene there? Uh, there's. Actually, I've only been windsurfing a couple of times in Switzerland. In in Zug, the, there's no wind, um, or not not really. It's not a very good location. Um, the um, uh, Ornesi in uh, Lucerne, which is about uh, forty five minutes drive from me, is a you get a very good thermal wind that funnels between two cliffs, um, and that's a pretty good location. But I used to, um, yeah, I don't go as often as I should do. Uh, but I love the sea, so I, I go and try and do a couple of windsurfing trips per year to the sea. Let, let me just go back to when you were a teenager then windsurfing. Did you just windsurf and got better through windsurfing, or were you also invested in the conditioning required for being a better windsurfer? You know, any strength training? Did you go out running or ride your bike or anything to supplement that that sort of technical skill? Um I don't think we really knew about sort of, uh, you know the, the the strength and conditioning that would be that would be required. Um, 
I did. I've always ridden my bike. So I, I've always been a, a cyclist and, and I would cycle um, when it wasn't windy. I would go out with friends and cycle, you know, tens of miles. Um, and so I, I was actually sort of pretty passionate about cycling as well. Um, windsurfing itself is actually a pretty good strength a strength and conditioning type exercise it's mm-hmm. uh, you know there's a you know, you're pulling against a pretty heavy rig a pretty heavy sail mm-hmm. um and so you know i had very good upper body strength when i was when i was young through that windsurfing and also there's an awful lot of core fitness as well because of the the way you're hooked onto the sail the way that you then use your body weight as a lever mm-hmm. um you need a really good core strength um, and actually, when you sort of are on waves and when you're trying to turn, we call that jibing or tacking. When you're trying to, to jibe, there's a, you, you unhook and you're then almost leaning right forward in a squat position um, and you know, flipping the sail around. And so those are actually very similar to what we would do as sort of, um, strength and conditioning type exercise mm. in the gym today. So I was pretty lucky that, yeah, maybe we didn't know about it so much, but uh, I was doing it sort of, mm. doing it anyway. Yeah. Um, back in another part of my coaching uh, life, which was working with elite athletes on the strength and conditioning, I did, I worked with a couple of windsurfers for a little while um, who were uh, Olympic hopefuls. So we, and at that point then, there was sub, there was a, a specific strength and conditioning program to try and supplement that, and it's almost like this is what you get as a a bit like cycling. If you cycle uphill and you push a big gear, you get strong legs. But then, if you can supplement that with some basic strength training, that enables you to perform that movement a bit more efficiently. So, I think that was the melding of um, yeah. preparation and sports performance, wasn't it, to create a more complete athlete. And I think, and I think today the professional windsurfers um, do a lot. You know, spend a lot of time in the gym. Mm-hmm. They probably spend less time on the water, or mm-hmm. when it's not windy, they're probably you know in the gym um, doing doing a lot of work. In fact, I know that the a lot of the, the professionals I know who spend uh, time every year in um, uh, in Tenerife, um, where they go for three months of the year um, for for a training camp. When they're not uh, out there windsurfing, I think they windsurf pretty much every day but when they're not windsurfing they're out um they're in the gym mm-hmm. and actually one of the top british windsurfers who goes every year was talking to me about um triathlons and because he wanted to try and get into cycling as well and go cycling in the afternoons in tenerife so yeah there, there's a lot more i think knowledge about the the strength and conditioning and the cycling and about how it all creates you know more complete uh, sportsmen or sports people do you when you, when you were growing up? I think you're a few years younger than me, but still, you'd probably remember superstars and how the athletes from different um, sports would come together. And I was always impressed with the downhill skiers, how fit they were once they got yeah. into the gym. And of course, um, and even doing things like they there were some superstars events where they had a cycling event. I think Kevin Keegan famously had a huge crash on one of them. Um, but the but the the skiers were amazing cyclists. And then they would talk about how during the summer that was spent most of the time, especially the, you know, in the, the Alpine skiers from Switzerland and Austria would spend their time cycling up and down some of the mountains that you're familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and, and I think a lot of the cyclists that um, are out here spend a lot of their time in the winters uh, skiing as well. So mm-hmm. it, it works both ways. So when did you first start triathlon then? Was it was it something you did in Weymouth? 
Uh, well, <laughs> ironically, my first triathlon that I ever did was in Weymouth. Um, and, then the, and, and so it started in 2015 and it actually started with a windsurfing event. So I was competing in the um, in Weymouth Speed Week, which is an in Weymouth International Speed Week, which is the, the oldest uh, windsurfing speed competition in the world. And that's sort of, you know, something that I was particularly good at. And there was no wind. And I, I just came across a sign at um, the, um, at the, the sailing academy saying that there was the Osprey Sprint Triathlon happening you know, that weekend. Mm-hmm. And because I used to live in Weymouth, my parents lived in Weymouth, and I had an old bike in, that was in the house, I thought, Okay, why not go and do this this triathlon thing? I think mm-hmm. I actually had to look up what a triathlon was. What are the sports <laughs> that were were involved? Um, so I was completely didn't have any idea what I was getting into, uh, and so I just um, phoned the event organizers and turned up to the this, this Osprey Sprint Triathlon, and yeah, I. I didn't do too badly. I didn't do particularly well. In fact, I got overtaken on the bike leg by um, by a, a lady on a very rusty Peugeot touring bike. Um, but I was instantly hooked. I, you know, I yeah, I, I just really loved the whole the whole thing about triathlon. Mm. And that was in uh, 20, 2014, I think that was uh, that I did my very first triathlon. So. I came into it, and how old was I? Forty-two. Um, so I came into it quite late. Um, so, and, and I've been doing triathlons. So this will be my tenth year of doing triathlons. Yeah, I sometimes think that that late entry into the sport will give you some longevity um, going forwards from here. I, I have a friend who is seventy-seven, and I think he's racing in Kona this year, and but he didn't take up the sport until he was fifty-two, and he's been a world champion in his age group. You know, and okay, he's got some dodgy knees now that need surgery, but he's still going strong and he still retains that enthusiasm. And I think, whereas I started when I was in my, um, yeah, early, well, no, late 20s. So I've been doing it for quite a long time. And that, you know, it's really difficult to maintain that enthusiasm over 30 or 40 years. Keeps coming, yeah. keeps coming and going. Every time I speak to someone like you, Matt, um, I feel a little bit more infused and think, oh, I'll have to, I'll have to have a go at that now. Yeah, and, and uh, I have a similar relationship with windsurfing. Yeah, you know, I was doing it, yeah, for for probably 10, 15 years. You know, in consuming all my time, and then sort of like you, know, you have a family and work starts you, know, and you have a career, and you know it's. You just uh, and you fall out of love with the sport, mm-hmm. um, but then um, then I started competing again, uh, you know, and, and sort of found that I was pretty good at it, and that would have been, you know, in, when I was in my late thirties and you know, heading into the like a bit of a midlife crisis in my forties, and I thought, yeah, this is this is quite good, and I and I really sort of started loving windsurfing again, um, and say so even though. You know, triathlon is my. Um, I spend all of my time. Well, we, we'll talk about triathlons and and ultra sports. Um, I think you, know, at my heart, when I go windsurfing, I think I just love this so much. <laughs> it's you know, it, it's uh, and it's probably you know, probably where my heart lies is is in in windsurfing, and probably the same for you in triathlon. You don't have to do it all the time, but you. You have a love of it that's always sort of sitting there. 
Yeah, well, I still swim, cycle and run every week and people keep saying to me, oh, you're still competing. And I think they find it quite strange that I have the discipline to go to the pool two or three times a week. I go out on my bike two or three times a week. I run a couple of times a week. But at the moment, I've, oh, I didn't. Maybe I will in a, in a week or two, but um have no interest in doing any races. There's a couple of things on my radar for this year, Um, but I, I like having the option. I like being fit enough. So if you said to me, Simon, we've got a team race here and we need another person, I could say, yeah, okay. Um, But I've taken up skiing in the last few years um, and I really like that. And because I live right by the canal here in Leeds, I'm able to um, go paddleboarding um, in a couple of minutes. So once the weather gets decent from sort of March, April, I'll have the paddleboard inflated and and just pop out. And I, what I really like about the paddleboarding is it's a complete antidote to triathlon. I find it calming. I go out on the water. I don't paddle to get my heart rate up. I just like the isolation, the quietness. Um, you know, watching the watching the birds on the water, watching the you know the animals, listening to the and 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 saying hello to people that are running and riding past and it, it's it, it's a very relaxing and calming way of um finishing your day particularly if it's a sunny evening after after a long ride or a long run um i guess probably if you're not competing on windsurfing then you could you're probably skillful enough to go out on the lake and just tootle around for a couple of hours aren't you yeah absolutely it's uh so yeah and and uh, yeah and I, I completely get what you're saying. I've got a, a kayak as well, and I and I actually go out on the lake and um, in the evening just go kayaking, no no intensity, just enjoying being out on the water. And, and so probably my feeling is exactly the same feeling that you get as when you're out on the paddleboard. And I think I I do have this love of water, so just. Getting out there on your own is, I find, just very calming and, yeah, it's a really good way to relax. Is swimming your strong point as a triathlete, would you say? No, swimming's my weak point. <laughs> it's, uh... But I bet you've got an advantage in that you're one of the, say, less than 20% of people who doesn't have that anxiety when you're getting your foot in the water and getting ready to start. Yeah, I, I have no anxiety, no water anxiety at mm. all. So, you know, uh, and... You know, big waves. Um, you know, I, I'm very, very used to mm-hmm. to dealing, and I, I actually have huge respect for the sea. When you're out windsurfing and you're windsurfing in, say, mast high waves, so those would be like, yeah, probably three, four meter faces. You know, mm-hmm. it's and you go through the rinse cycle when the wave breaks over you and mm-hmm. you get spun round and round. Yeah, uh, you you actually have to relax to see which way you float because you don't actually know which way is up or down mm-hmm. and you float upwards. So it's a, but so you have great respect, but also I think you learn how to deal with, with the sea. So I, I don't have any um, mm. great anxiety swimming, which, which is a, which is a great help on sea swims. And yeah. I'm, a, I'm a strong swimmer. I can swim for a long time. I'm just, I, you know, I didn't really do any swimming or any coach swimming as a child. And so therefore it's, uh, um, yeah, I, I struggle to swim very fast. I mean, I, I, people will say, okay, you know, I swim a, an Ironman swim in you know, an hour and 10 minutes. So, mm-hmm. which most people will say, well, that's pretty quick, but compared to a lot of the people I'm racing, it's, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a long way down once I get onto the bike. Everybody's fast is different, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
so at what point did Ironman come on the radar? You know, when you'd done that first triathlon, did you pick up a triathlon magazine and sort of see this amazing thing and think, I've got to do that? Or did it take a little while to percolate through? So it took a, it took a little while to percolate through. So I was I was aware of Ironman when, you know, pretty soon after I started. I started doing um, Olympic distance triathlons and sprint distance triathlons and did quite a few in the in the first season in so 2015. Um, and I entered the um, what was it the the new Forest Middle Distance Triathlon. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a, a guy that I was running with um, who was telling me all about Kona and Ironman. And that's and so that was the end of my first season. And that's probably what sparked this sort of desire to you know, well, maybe I should go and and, and do Ironman. Because I think before that, I was thought, no, Ironman, that's going to be far too hard. I'm not, not going to be able to do an Ironman. But then so I was chatting to this guy and yeah, we I thought, yeah, okay, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll have this as, a, as an ambition. I didn't think, okay, I'm going to go and do this, you know, mm-hmm. straight away. But it was, uh, it, you know, it was something that was there at the back of my mind. And yeah, so that's, so that's why, you know, why I started. In fact, one of the things that does, I wouldn't say upset me, but I sort of frustrates me a little bit when you look at the in the social media is that I think in the past there was doing an Ironman, you, you started off doing sprint triathlons and then you did a few Olympic distance and then you might go and do a half Ironman and then maybe in a couple of years you would go and do an Ironman. Now it's like, well, I've never done swim, bike, run. I'm going to do an Ironman. It's, yeah, okay, that that's fine, and you know it, it can be done, but I'm not sure you're you're going to enjoy the experience of trying to go from nothing to a an Ironman just to get it done on your bucket list. So that's one of my frustrations. I'm not saying people shouldn't do it, but yeah. I think they would enjoy the journey far more if they they took this over a couple of years and built up to that distance. Well, you won't be surprised to know that as a coach over the years, I've had. You know, barely a year goes by without one or two requests for, from somebody for help with coaching because they're doing their first triathlon and it's going to be Ironman Lanzarote um, or, <laughs> or or Ironman <laughs> Wales. And uh, um, I know you've – have you done Lanzarote? I know you've done yes, Wales. Yes, I've done Lanzarote. Yeah, that, that's so, where I qualified for Kona. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you, you know how tough both of those events are. <laughs> and uh, both of them have got swims that can be challenging if the, if the wind's blowing in the wrong direction. And yeah. – uh, so I'm um, I'm like you. I t- I took took me eight years from my first triathlon to building up, thinking I'm not sure if I could do this. And of course, Ironman didn't have the anything is possible moniker there, mm-hmm. and they weren't encouraging you. Almost, yeah. Maybe we should blame them that they're saying to people, you know, if you dream it, you can then you can believe it. You know, you can achieve it, um, which is true. And if you read Dave Goggins' book, you might think you can go out and do the Death Water, the um, yeah. Death Valley run straight away with no running, but um, you, you might be able to. But it's probably not going to be very good for you. Yeah, um, or enjoyable. Yeah. So um, I'm like you. I'd much prefer to see somebody having a nice, you know, lead into it and, and building themselves up physically and mentally to it. But hey ho. We have to, those are the cards we are dealt with sometimes yeah. as, as coaches. Um, so 20, 2017, you moved to Switzerland, uh, which is where you live now. Fantastic environment. Um, big triathlon scene there. Obviously, Switzerland's one of the longest um, European Ironmans on the calendar. 
Um, what did that mean in terms of your training then? Because you went there for work, didn't you? You didn't relocate yeah. because it was a, a great location to train. Yeah, no, I, I went, I went, came for work. Um, so I was, yeah, um, offered a job. Um, I'm very lucky that I was offered a job in in Switzerland um, uh, to uh, to actually work in you know, a, a, one of, in fact, Switzerland's largest company, ABB, um, which is a huge industrial company, and I went to. Uh, be responsible for the the supply chain at, at ABB. Um, so a pretty sort of high level, pretty responsible job. But um, the first thing that that I did when I came to Switzerland, actually, um, the two criteria when I was looking for a place to live was about finding you know a, a place that had good school for my for my two kids. So I actually had two kids who were uh, needed to come to Switzerland and needed to go to school there and. A town that had a really good triathlon club, and so um, <laughs> those were my my two criteria. Um, and I also found a um, fantastic cycling club, which I'm now um, part of the uh, the organising committee on that that uh, cycling club. So uh, I fell into the, um, the 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 cycling and the triathlon scene in Switzerland and what I discovered is that um, Switzerland has this huge community of um, really really good athletes so in in the area where where I am we have lots of you know former pro cyclists Um, I train ride quite often with a, a former Olympic cyclist um it, it's you know it, it's incredible just that that you know the the support network uh, and the facilities like the, the tri club the the swimming facilities that they they have the organized rides the you know the ability to run in the mountains uh it's a um i think it gives me a huge competitive advantage you know when it comes to just the ability to train with incredible people with incredible facilities and with incredible landscapes and you know one of the things i think we were talking about earlier is um you have everything here from a triathlon perspective you in the summer the lake you can swim um actually without a wetsuit in the lake which is crystal clear water um it's about 500 meters from my house um you can swim no wetsuit in it from probably the end of may till you know early october and you can start swimming with a wetsuit probably from you know mid-April, mid-April onwards. Um, and so you, you've got the swimming in the lake, you've got the you know fantastic roads with drivers who are much yeah, much more responsible, let's say, than than some of the, the the drivers elsewhere in the world and the ability to run on you know fantastic trails. So yes, it's a it's an amazing place for an amateur triathlete to to come to train. Now, in in the little bio you sent me, uh, there was something that stood out for me about this time when you went to Switzerland, um, was that you had a bit of an epiphany around training and you you make note of not wanting training to um, get in the way of work or work to get in the way of training. So you limited yourself to 35 hours a week. Now, that in modern work environments, it's, it's really difficult to limit yourself to that and not find yourself being overlooked in terms of opportunities. Um because it's a dog eat dog world, isn't it? And everybody wants to push on more than the other person, and they're willing to work 50, 60 hours, probably to the um, to the detriment of their health. And it seems like you weren't prepared to make that jump. 
Yeah, and and so that well, and so first, so uh, yeah, how did this occur? So I, yeah, I was in my you know what's it early forties, uh, and I had a you know uh, an extremely successful career. I you know climbing up the that that greasy management pole and had reached the sort of probably getting towards the top of uh, of you know my field, which is around supply chain management. Um, and I was running the supply chain in a multi-billion-dollar organization, um, and I looked at the the you know the people who were above me and saw you know I guess a lot of primarily men um, coming up to retirement retirement age overweight. They had pretty much nothing in their lives other than you know than than work and thinking well. This is the tra- trajectory that I'm going on. You know, give me mm-hmm. ten more years, and this is exactly what I'm going to be like. And I'm just, you know, this is not really what I want to happen. And so I said, okay, so right, I'm doing done pretty well in my career. So I'll just like slow down a little bit and say, right, you know, let's focus on putting some time into training and making sure that I go out and train every day because I was actually getting quite good at triathlon at that time as well, um, and. Yeah, so I need to go and try and do train for two hours per day. Um, and so I would do things like um, I would cycle to work in the morning, which was yeah, 20 miles, 35 kilometers and cycle home in the evening. Um, and that would be a just over an hour cycle ride each way. At lunchtime, rather than going and you know having a long lunch, I would go and go for a you know 10 kilometer or 15 kilometer run, so a 10 mile run. Uh, at lunchtime, just to go and try and make sure that I got sort of some of that training time in. And I, I also said, like, I'm not going to work sort of 45, 50, 60 hours. I'm going to go and sort of um, work 35 hours. Um, and the really surprising thing for me was that I think that my career actually accelerated as opposed to, you know, that I was starting to get overlooked. Um, I was actually getting you know more and more um, responsibility. And what I realized is a lot of people actually just put in the long hours because they think that that's what needs to be done. And when you're saying, right, well, I've got to spend some time with my family and I don't want to lose a lot of that time. Um, I want to go and spend time training, so therefore I'm going to have to spend less time working, and I've still got the same amount of work I need to do, so I need to do that work more efficiently and not spend a lot of time wasting a lot of time when I'm working. Um, And so, you know, ironically, it didn't hurt my career at all um, by sort of slowing down a bit and working 35 hours and 35 hours per week. Um, Maybe I was lucky, um, but it certainly sort of... uh, and I and also I think that you know being fit, doing sports also does give you a degree of respect in the workplace. And you know, and I think that people maybe give you a little bit more, little bit more freedom and a little bit more allowance to uh you know not to do the the the, the ridiculous hours. I mean, if you think about it, 35 hours a week is seven working hours a day, right? It should be possible to get through all of your working tasks in seven hours a day. And if you and I mean I've I'm unemployable now, I think, and I've been self-employed for the best part of 40 years. But I still, I see folks, you know, that I'm working with or have worked with that are sharing their diaries with me. And they're basically in meetings from 8 a.m. until 6 p.m. And there's hardly any wiggle room in there. 
and then they're having to do all of the catch-up paperwork afterwards and at weekends. And they're the same age as me. And I, like you, I'm looking at and thinking, what? Where, where does this? Where does this take you to? You know, you you um, where's the health part in this? Um, and then I then I you know we have conversations about sleep, which I know we're going to talk about. And you know, when you're working late, when you're in, in taking late phone calls and having to get up early and et cetera, et cetera, you know, that's impacting your sleep and it's impacting your health. Um, and I wonder how much work could be done if, if, if it wasn't for all the meetings and it wasn't for all the um, other stuff. That, and maybe somebody that's probably in this environment is probably te- telling me, will tell me that I just don't understand because I'm not in there and I don't understand how it works. But I also think there's a sort of momentum that builds that everybody thinks that's how they have to work and nobody's prepared to to sort of take another path. Yeah, there's an awful lot of that. I think the you know, meetings are a great one. I mean, it's, yeah, how many meetings do you really need to go to? We've got this culture, particularly post-COVID, of like the mm-hmm. – uh, actually, COVID actually helped a little bit with meetings. Um, one of the things that happened during COVID is that the meetings were shortened from being one-hour-long meetings. So the standard meeting pre-COVID, everything was an hour. Post-COVID, all the meetings are half an hour long, which is absolutely brilliant because I think you, you still get the same amount of work done in, in the meetings. But it's also about making sure that uh, – yeah, you, know, you don't. You don't take. You know, it, it's about identifying um, what work and what meetings do you need to go to, which are both important and urgent. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of meetings that are neither important or urgent that people just feel that it's the culture that we've got to go to, and it's about you know not doing a lot of those meetings. So mm-hmm. meetings are you know in in business are one of my you know, I, I think we we spend too much time doing meetings when we should be doing work. But of course, if meetings are only half an hour, it means you can get twice as many in a day. So obviously. <laughs> <laughs> that whole ridiculous thing. I know if I was going to try and lift up the amount of time I was spending on something, it would be sleep and time with my friends and family and training before it would be extra meetings. But again, I'm unemployable and that's probably why. <laughs> and, and there are, I mean, I think you know, last week's podcast, you spoke to, to Dan Clues. I mean, talk about somebody who is busy. I mean, he yeah. has a successful career uh, and yet, he still finds time to be the top amateur in the world. I mean, and, and train twenty hours a week. So, it's, uh, well, what, don't, don't tell me that you can't combine the two. Well, and you know what was really interesting about that that conversation was that Dan said at the beginning of the year he was getting offers from people to be a consultant with their company, and that's very flattering. And it's easy to say yes because we all like that flattery, don't we? Um, but he committed to this triathlon goal. And he had to have some very crucial conversations with everybody that was a, a stakeholder in that. And he had to learn to say no. And that's quite a liberating thing, learning to say no. I mean, it's an easy word, but I don't. I think we say yes far more than we say no. And there's there's plenty of authors who've written books on the power of saying no, but um, I don't think any of us are uh, really that good at it. But when you do learn to say no, and it's like, right, this is my priority. This is what I've got to focus on. And in order to commit to that, I've also got to commit to not doing that. And that, that was quite a poignant thing for me, for Dan. And, and, and of course, Dan's a smart lad. And, and if you're really in demand, then people are willing to wait for you. Yeah. And, and actually, it's much easier for me because um, – and if somebody says, oh, you know, can we have a meeting and it's going to disrupt my training, then 
I will say no unless you know that that, that meeting or that piece of work is absolutely essential. I'll mm. say no. And I tell you a funny story. When I was when I was in in a job, I was a salesman selling shelving and racking, and I used to cover North Yorkshire. I went out to this um, business in Scarborough, and I was knocking on the door, and the managing director of this little company answered it. And uh, I was telling him what I did. And he said, look, lad, he said, I, I won't, I, I don't have meetings. He said, I like to go running. He said, if you want to come running with me next time, I'll give you an order. And I think he must have been used to all these older salesmen saying, oh, no, no, bye. I said, yeah, great. What time are we doing it? So he said, well, if you can be here every Wednesday, I go running at nine o'clock. Right. So next week, turned up, running shoes at the ready, went out and ran for him for an hour, got the order. And he said to me, oh, "That's that's the most liberating meeting I've ever had. You know, out on the out on the cliff tops in the sunshine, talking business, watching the waves, uh, and it was great for both of us." So I, I actually go to a lot of conferences in my you know current role, and whenever I go to a conference, I normally send a message to the com- conference organisers saying, "Do you mind if uh, you know, we you promote a, a morning run?" Uh, mm-hmm. And and I'll go and gather a group, and they'll put it. Generally, the conference organisers will go and put that on the send it out to all the delegates, and I get thirty, fifty people come out for a morning run with me to, during the conferences. It, it's just something that I've always done. I'm I'm actually the conference next week in London, and do we'll do exactly the same thing. Mm. Yeah, it's a great way of networking, isn't it? Um, yeah. And far far healthier. It ticks a lot of boxes having a morning run. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about your training a little bit. Um, I know this is something you've posted a lot about. You're a, a fan of Zone 2 training, as I am. Um, how do you break your training up? You, you mentioned earlier that you like to try and get in a couple of hours a day. Um, so over, generally, across the year, what's your weekly average, would you say? So, well, my, my weekly uh, – so my big thing is consistency. So I, I train – about 15 hours a week, um, about so it works out as a, around 800 hours of, of training per year. Um, and um, the, the you know, uh, probably, well, I know actually looking back at all of my records on training peaks that that it's it's around 78, 79 percent zone two, and mm-hmm. you know, 20 percent is, is uh, you know, up in some zone four. I try and avoid the zone three. Um, so you know, it typically, and uh, what, what I will do, um, a lot of it is, um, yeah, a lot of the zone two is is running. Um, so I'll try and run, you know, three, four times a week, you know, get a longer run in. Um, the only, and that's pretty much all of my running is zone two, with the exception of uh, an interval session on Wednesday, which I do with the Tri Club. Um, and, um, uh, and I also do a, a park run or a you know a five k community run. So we don't have park run in Switzerland, but we organise a I organise a five k community run uh, every week, which will be at sort of you know a five k pace. So those are the only two runs that I do, which are, are higher than than zone two. And the rest is you know just lots of time running, typically um, not on the roads, looking running on trails. I, I love running on mountains, so I love running up hills as well. Um, and just, you know, it's almost actually like you're being on your paddleboard, just, you know, 
looking mm-hmm. at the just spending time with yourself internalizing your own thoughts normally i don't listen to music sometimes i do but it's it's just just you know enjoying yourself and enjoying the the process of running i don't go go out running to hurt myself and then cycling is the same so cycling a, a lot of it is sort of um group rides and club rides and i know a lot of people on the forum say oh no if you're a triathlete you don't want to go and you want to be cycling on your own no, you, you know, I'll go out with go out on a club ride. I'm a, I'm a better, I'm a stronger cyclist than most of the people in the club, but that's fine. So it means that I'm doing a nice sort of three hour zone two effort on a club ride, um, enjoying chatting to people, enjoying that social aspect, enjoying the the scenery, and yeah, maybe I'll go and push hard on a few hills and you know have a plan to say, okay, I know that we're going to go and do this, you know. Mm. thousand meter climb and i'm going to go and push really hard on that thousand meter climb but the rest of it is going to be a really low intensity and so that's that's the way that i generally mix it up i think it's of um uh, and and in the winter um in the winter i do a lot of riding on on zwift a lot of indoor riding uh, i i don't like structured works workouts i like sort of the the zwift racing which which works really well for me because typically you know when you do that type of um the, the Zwift racing a lot of it is fairly low intensity mixed in with extremely high intensity um so you might do five minutes of low intensity and then there's a a sprint or a hill where you come up to and you do a a few minutes of really hmm. you know absolutely maximum effort and that that's just what works really well for me. I can push myself harder in those type of of, of um, uh, those type of you know, exercising exercises than trying to do a, a structured workout. But structured workouts work very well for other people. So I'm not just knocking it. I'm just saying that th- this is what works for me. Well, that's one of the things I have learned as a coach is that you know the research says this Silas research says you know 4 by 4 versus 4 by 8 versus 4 by 16 minutes which one works best well 4 by 8 is better great if you like pushing yourself to suffer for 8 minutes on your own looking at a blank wall um personally I don't um I can do it um but I don't look forward to it uh, and I know some people do and uh, my opinion has changed over the years like yours has about you know, riding on your own, sticking to doing an hour at this particular pace, you know, that's specific for triathlon versus the community aspect of riding, the social aspect, you know, very, very important for longevity and health. Um, um, in Switzerland, your climbs will be longer. They might not be as steep, but in Yorkshire, if you're out riding, there's going to be some accidental zone three and four and five yeah. stuff when you're going up a, a one in three or a one in four or a one in 10. Um, and then there's going to be a lot of freewheeling and bike handling skills. And in between that, you can just toot along chatting. Um, so you get a little bit of a mix without structuring it. But yeah, Alistair and Johnny um, won Olympic medals on group riding. I don't think they ever went on an indoor bike trainer until the last, you know, till COVID. But there was, there's lots of that stochastic type of riding and yeah it's it's not truly specific but it's pretty bloody good yeah alistair and johnny are really into that sort of social aspect of riding mm-hmm. i see you know a lot of the a lot of their training and they, they don't seem to go out then they're, they're not like lionel who's training on his own they're you know they're out training as in, in running and riding as groups all the time well and i think that's something that people overlook is well 
I saw somebody that had been training with that group in Yorkshire and saying that they'd relocated to work with a coach who was in Spain. And why would you go to Yorkshire in the winter? It's miserable and cold and wet. But for Alistair and Johnny and some of those other folks that are from Yorkshire, what they're actually getting is the group, the group mindset, the group ethic, you know, meet up here at nine o'clock on a, on a Wednesday morning to go out and do this ride, whatever the weather. And they do pretty much ride whatever the weather. And if they can't ride, on the road, they'll go out and they'll mess around in the woods on the cyclocross bike for a couple of hours or they'll go out gravel biking. Um, but it's the group aspect, it's the community, yeah. which is why they've, I mean, they could go anywhere in the world, couldn't they, to train and they could come to Switzerland in the summer and they could go to Australia in the winter, but they've always been drawn to being um, at home here. Um, so I think that's really important, to, really important part. And and I like, I like the fact that you, you do the Swift racing. You've you said that you got quite a high ranking as a Swift rider, right? Yeah. So my, I think as of this morning, I'm ranked 240th in the world. So that's overall, or, or in uh, your age group, or in, no, overall, in English. Overall, I'm not, I'm 17th in my age group. Not so. Englishman living in Zug. Yes, <laughs> but it yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, 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 but it's something that I I enjoy doing. So mm-hmm. I've not got into Swift racing at all. I can still go on my old compu train and ride in the garage when I have to. Um, it's something perhaps I need to get into because a lot of my friends are on it. Um, maybe this will be the uh, maybe this will be the catalyst that I need. Yeah, but but even you see, the Zwift is a you um, is a great community. I, I'm a I'm a member of a, a club, a virtual riding club. We, we're fairly small, about sort of sixty members, but we have a load of people who are. Former Olympic, we've got at least two former Olympic athletes. We've got two two youngsters who are on uh, you know, uh, professional contracts. Uh, we've got you know other Cat One cyclists, others sort of a former pro cyclist, a Danish former Danish time trial champion, and you know, and we have a real community. So we chat with each other on sort of Discord. So. Uh, you know, just being part of that, it's like, you know, it, it's a virtual inv- virtual equivalent of what Alistair and Johnny are doing in, in Yorkshire is uh, having that sort of, uh, that social interaction and having that social interaction with people who are far better cyclists than mm. I will ever be. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I, but there, there are no big egos because they've all actually been there and done it in the real world before. Tell me about your swimming. Um, what do you do about swimming? You, you talked about, you know, you, I mean, you said I don't do much high intensity running, but you do two out of your four sessions a week, even though the, the, the blocks of time, um, you do a bit of swifting. Um, do you do any high intensity in the water or are you focusing mostly on technique? Well, it's, um, so we, we do, I do, t- um, particularly in the, for, for nine months of the year, do two coach swimming sessions per week with the, the, the local triathlon club. Um, and that's a mixture of technique. So that would be with within one hour within one hour set um, would probably be about half an hour focus on technique, uh, and then probably a half hour main set, which will be um, sometimes will be focused on speed. So actually, the the set did yesterday was um, uh, very much focused on sort of speed work, doing uh, sort of. Um, 50 uh sorry uh was it 20 times 25 meters 
flat out with um, 10 second rest intervals, you know, you know, that's very, that's a probably more of a speed one speed session, but uh, your other sessions uh, going through a structured process would be um, focused on sort of longer distances, you know, pyramids, you know, other type of uh, sets. Then when it gets into the summer and um, swimming in the lake, um, that will all be um, swimming 2,000 metres, swimming 4, 4K, um, up to 6K, so getting that longer distance. So I'll, mm. I'll typically do that in the in the lake in the summer as opposed to in the pool. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I need, I should spend more time working in the pool, to be honest. <laughs> it's, a, it's the one aspect of my triathlon that, that I overlook or, you know, mm. It, it we tend it's very easy to focus on the things that you're good at and i'm good mm. at cycling and i'm good at running and i focus on that and i'm getting marginal gains on cycling and running and i think there's some pretty significant gains i can get in the pool but i just need to and i'm sure that you hear that from athletes that you coach as well this is a very common story i think uh, yeah but you know everybody has their own justifications for stuff and at the end of the day matt none of us you know, none of us are professional athletes. And if you're not getting enjoyment out of it and you're forcing yourself to do stuff because you think you need to, um, that's probably a, a surefire way of losing your enthusiasm overall. And I wouldn't want anybody to do that. Um, let's go back to your running for a moment. You're how old are you now? Early 50s? 51. You're 51 now. A lot of the triathletes that I speak to who are sort of in their late 40s, early 50s say that what they've noticed is despite the effort that they put into their running, that's the one thing that's where the times and the performances seem to drop off. Um, not so much with swimming or cycling. And certainly when you speak to athletes that are getting up to the late fifties, they're saying the same, it's more noticeable. Have you, have you noticed anything um, th that's happening with your running in a negative uh, way? No. Um, I, I'm, I'm aware that this is, I'm aware of this inevitability um, <laughs> and my my running is um, still pretty good. So um, I think maybe where I am losing a little bit is my 5K runtime. Um, it's uh, that uh, I'm not quite as fast over 5K as I was in the past. Um, I set my marathon PB um, two years ago um, and I'm yeah not far off uh, not far off still running so uh, I can still run a sub three hour marathon um, and so I'm not seeing a big drop off on running yet. I hope you're enjoying the show so far and learning a lot. If you aren't already a regular listener, I hope you feel you might come back. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button so you know whenever a new episode arrives. I publish these twice a week ad-free, and with the mission of improving the health and performance of endurance athletes around the world. And to help me, I'd love it if you could share the episode with one person you think could benefit. If you have a couple more minutes, perhaps you could leave me a review on your chosen platform once you've finished listening to this episode. Okay, let's get back to the show. Okay, and do you do anything specific to maintain the resilience of your of the body work, you know, do you spend much time in the gym lifting weights? Do you do any um, structured mobility and stretching work every day? So um, 
this year, so for the first time this year, I'm actually starting to do a lot more strength and conditioning and put strength and conditioning into my plan, um, into my plan for, for the year. Um, so it's something that, you know, I've been meaning to do and not really managed to do. And so this is the, the year where I'm actually going to start doing a lot more of that. Um I actually had a bit of a, a wake-up call on this. It, um, so for, for the last five years, I've been using the same same set of scales, and of mm-hmm. within scales that give you, and, and it's actually looking at the, some of the trends over five years. And actually what I can see in the trends that that I actually am losing muscle mass over the, 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 the last five years. Not a huge amount, but there is definitely a trend downwards. And I sort of, and which is what you would expect to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, really, in order to arrest that or try and you know, minimize that as much as possible, I think you need to do a lot more strength work um, mm-hmm. and strength and conditioning. So that's yeah one of the big changes that I'm making to my uh, my plan for this year. You might have got some inspiration from Dan last week. Then in I that did podcast. get some inspiration from Dan last week. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> that was that. That was another significant thing where he mentioned um, that 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 was the one thing he changed about his training from his Kona performance in 2018 to his yeah. um, to his Ironman California performance. But also now that he's retired, he's actually taken up lifting weights more seriously. Wants to get big. <laughs> yeah, maybe that'll happen to you, Matt. You'll have this complete epiphany, and next time I do a podcast with you, you'll have big guns and a 50 inch chest yeah and 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 actually you know where i where i notice it the most in the last couple of years is is windsurfing so i still do a windsurfing race and um i didn't notice actually last year for the first time that um i am losing strength i didn't feel as strong in the in the strong Mm -hmm. winds as as i felt in the past um so yeah (laughs) Hopefully, you know, doing a bit of strength work, you know, extra weight is going to address the, you know, address that and keep me windsurfing for longer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as a strength and conditioning coach, I've, oh, I think I wrote my first article for 220 magazine back in 1995, which is about strength and conditioning for triathletes. So I feel like I've been talking about this for a long time now and it's gaining some traction 30 years later. But, one of the biggest concerns I know most endurance athletes have is that they're going to gain muscle and that's going to slow them down. But the, the counter to that is that that muscle is going to give you more resilience. Actually, if you're doing lots of endurance training, the likelihood of gaining much muscle is very slim unless you're piling in the calories and it's probably going to be useful for you anyway. Um, so I think once you get to 50, Gaining muscle is not a bad thing. I think that's something we should aspire to, not something that we should say, oh, I want to avoid gaining muscle. Well, absolutely, because, you know, with all due respect to anybody that's still competing, you're not always going to be a triathlete, but you're always going to be a human in need of extra strength, right? Yeah. Um, So COVID came and went. Uh, Like most people, it was probably great for you to get the training done. But it did seem to give you a bit of a change direction. Um, and you, at what point in that did you qualify for Kona? Was was it just after COVID? Just after COVID. Was, yeah. yeah. It was Ironman Lanzarote, which was the first, I think the first European Ironman mm-hmm. post-COVID. So clearly, clearly the volume of training and the consistency you got in COVID would have been a um, a, a so, nice ba- background so to all of that. For me, was was a 
was a, created a huge step change in performance. That's where during COVID, where I went from being somebody who would be, you know, in I guess the 80th percentile. So I'd be in my, in my age group. I'd be in the get in the top 40 positions, top 20 positions. To somebody who was actually regularly competing for, you know, fighting for podiums, fighting for for top ten positions. So, actually, you know, that that you know, additional training that I put in over the over 2020, 2021, you know, created that big step change in performance. Were you one of those folks then that were able to to sort of get your head around the process of just training every day? Um, because there seemed to be a very clear division between the people who were just lost without having a race to aim for versus those who were able to just get their head down and see it as a routine. Yeah, I I just saw it as a, as a routine. Mm. Uh, strangely, not having a race to train for, um, I think was a big help because the, the, when you're doing a large volume of races, you're, you're particularly over the summer, you're spending two weeks tapering. You then mm-hmm. race, you then spend a week's recovering or two weeks recovering Mm. Um, you're losing you oh no you're not losing you're missing the opportunity for mm-hmm. building base over those four week period over those four weeks just for for one race so actually by not doing races um yeah. really helped actually with that consistency and building that really solid base i think a lot of a lot of recreational triathletes would be surprised to know that um, if they didn't take some proactive action, a lot of the professional triathletes would be less fit at the end of the season, even though they've been racing a lot. Due to that exact situation that you mentioned, travel to a race, lose a couple of days, prepare for the race, do the race, come back. There's no blocks of conditioning. And um, it's common now for groups to take a couple of weeks out of their season and maybe come out to Switzerland, maybe go up to Tenerife somewhere, go to altitude that causes them to back off the training intensity. And then they put big volume in just to top up the fitness so they can keep going right through to the WTS, you know, finale at the end of September. Yeah. I, I actually um, have a, a guy I, I trained with actually the first, the, when I first did a, a cycling ultra race, Robbie Britton, who is mm-hmm. a British 24 hour. He's got the British 24 hour running record. I think bronze medal for Britain, you know, is a, GB coach um and when we were doing this uh, ultra race around Switzerland actually j- just after covid um Robbie said to me you know doing a race is actually destroying fitness every mm-hmm. time he does a race and he's competing at elite level every time he does a race it's actually you know t- taking fitness away and i think that's you know something that we we don't necessarily think about we think oh if we're doing a race and you're pushing ourselves to the absolute limit. We're building fitness. You're you're not. You're actually sort of losing fitness. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, that's a perspective that I think most people don't consider um, about everything they do. That you know they have all these races, and I'm always keen as a coach to try and build those races in as training opportunities, apart from the big one, rather than having to try and put out your best performance and then having to taper and relax afterwards, because those are. Um, those are lost training opportunities. And I think going back to why Alistair and Johnny like to spend a lot of time in Yorkshire, it's because whilst they have those opportunities, every time you go to a new venue, you, you need a day full of tra- um, traveling to get there. So that's a day lost at either end. You probably need a couple of, if it's a new venue, you probably need a couple of days to just find your feet and get to understand everything. 
Now, if you multiply that by several different trips over the year, that's a, that's two or three weeks. And at that level, that could make the difference between a medal and finishing out off the yeah. podium. Um, maybe not a significance for the rest of us, but at that level, it, it can be highly significant. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about your Kona experience then. So did you go in 21 or 2022? Uh, I went to Kona in 2022. So you didn't go to St. George. You went. You actually went yeah, to Kona. Yeah, I actually went to Kona, yeah. So I, I actually qualified uh, at Lanzarote, and I had the choice of doing St. George or Kona. Um, so, uh, you know, um, and, and I want to do Kona. I wanted to do Kona at least once. Well, no, actually, I only want to do Kona once. I have no mm-hmm. aspirations to go back to Kona, but I wanted to do Kona once. So that's why I chose to to postpone to 2022 and go to Kona. Um, um was the was the experience of the race the whole atmosphere everything you know running down to the energy lab at sunset or just before cycling out to harvey you know swimming swimming over the reef and seeing the turtles might riley calling you across the line were all of those things exactly as you'd hope they might be uh i think so uh i mean i i had a brilliant time in kona um and you know, and uh, you know, I think you have so much expectation about what it's what it's going to be like. Um, I really enjoyed the swim. I really enjoyed the. the mm-hmm. I mean, there was there were reasonably big waves. I mean, ro- big rolling waves that that year in, in Kona. So, but that was a it was a an amazing swim. Um, the bike is, you know, it's not the most interesting bike in the world, but it's very iconic, and so mm-hmm. you and and you don't have to worry about bike handling. There's no there's any corners <laughs> you have to go around, um, and the run, um, I, I think, was about thirty eight degrees um, uh, on the run in twenty twenty two, so it was pretty warm. But uh, and I was expecting it to be um, to be really hard. I actually really enjoyed the run. I so, and going down to the energy lab, I, I found the run was a. Uh, a, a really good experience. It was a, a bit slow. I actually overbiked a bit. Um, I got carried away. I'm normally really good and really disciplined mm-hmm. on the bike. I got a bit carried away on the bike, and so you know, it wasn't my best run in the world. But, but it was. I. But I really enjoyed it as well. It's that first forty miles going out towards um, uh, Kauaihe, isn't it? Where yeah. everybody's um, really pushing, and you get the big packs. And then it once once you've had that long climb up to Harvey and coming back down, it's it starts to settle. I'm I'm always interested to see the number of people who've gone flying past at the beginning, who then you you just cruise past at the end because they've like like you mentioned there they've just overdone it and then and then they've got the headwind going back up towards the um the cemetery in the airport and it's just yeah. knocked all the stuffing out of them. Um, yeah, it's a it's a completely different kettle of fish, Kona, to everything else just because of all of the conditions and everybody on their A game. Yeah, it, um, it, it, it was a it was an amazing experience, but it's a it's not something that I necessarily feel a burning passion, burning desire to go back to Kona. I really, lo- I, I really love to go and do the World Championship in Nice. But mm-hmm. well, if you keep going the way you are, Matt, maybe you'll a- get maybe you'll get the chance. Let's talk about transcontinental bike ride. That's something completely different um, because yeah. not only does it challenge your bike endurance there's also the sleep deprivation aspect and that's something i'm always curious of on these multi-day events is you know how how folks deal with that right so um 
if you think that the triathlons we have a sort of um, a very sort of vociferous or very one side uh, people with a very sort of polarized view about what triathlon should be looked at the ultra cycling community is triathlon times 10 uh, and it's uh, the, there are so many uh, you know unwritten rules and mm -hmm. you know in, and this this whole thing about sleep, sleep deprivation so there was a um, there was a film made about the transcontinental race and the transcontinental race is about, it's about 4000 kilometer race uh, across europe it's self supported you have to plot your own route but you have to follow certain hit certain checkpoints and follow a few parkours which are typically you know very nasty gravel set gravel roads for about 100 kilometers each mm -hmm. um but the um and they made this film um about the transcontinental but you know bike racing you know, i watched it and you see these people who are you know filthy and completely sleep deprived and i thought look i'm not going to do this this is not my my thing at all so uh, before I did the, the TCR, I said, right, I'm going to sleep six hours per night in a hotel if I can every single night. Mm -hmm. There was one night where I didn't find a hotel. I actually slept in a in a church. Um, so it was actually quite a pleasant experience. But the um, and getting that six hours sleep per night for me was really important because that was the time where you know, my muscles could recover and I could actually build on the fitness that I was you know, you, through the cycling during the day and then you could recover and actually build fitness over the night so i was actually getting fitter as the the race went on um, mm. and what happened is that every day early on i would i would sleep at night and people would pass me during the night and then i would pass them in the day and for the first five days and after five days, you couldn't have a conversation with these people anymore because they were <laughs> almost unintelligible and, mm. you know, because they were they got so sleep deprived. So I think that there's this big this big thing in ultra cycling about you know sleep sleep deprivation. You don't need to do it. You can mm -hmm. actually ride 15 hours per day at a good speed. You can get six hours sleep per night. And the other rule I had was to sit down for three meals per day. So mm. actually, not just snacking on the bike, sit down properly, and a, and a super a, a supermarket picnic was counted as a sit down meal. But I was really disciplined about that, and um, and it made the whole experience you know quite enjoyable. Uh, so I so yeah, don't ask me what the sleep deprivation is like on an ultra cycling race because um, I, I didn't experience it. I think if you watch the Netflix documentary on the spine race, you see a very similar. Um, comparison there. One of the elite runners chooses to take sleep at regular opportunities, and the other one is able just to keep going. Um, and that maybe is a personal learning in how well you deal with sleep deprivation. And um, but for me, you know, I um, was supplying a computer training to a guy called Chris Hopkinson, um, who was a great ultra cyclist you might have come across me held 12 and 24 hour records and he competed in the ram but he also told me that he'd lost quite a lot of friends who competed in these long distance events and had crashed often into vehicles because they'd just fallen asleep on the bike and veered into the path of an oncoming vehicle um and you know it had scarred him quite a lot it, it made him afraid to go out he rode three hours on a computer every morning because he didn't like riding on the roads unless he was actually racing um so 
yeah, it's, uh, I know I'm not very good if I don't have sleep. So I think I might take the path like you. And again, for an event like that, I'd think this is an experience. I probably wouldn't want to do it every year. So I want to remember it. And therefore, in order to make it memorable, I need to take certain steps, which would be I'll check into a hotel. I don't know about the sleeping in a church being comfortable. We were we were visiting a church last week in um, in Italy, and it was absolutely freezing. So, yeah, well, this this was in Greece in the middle of a heat wave, so nah, it was, uh, that probably the freezing. It wasn't, the, it wasn't freezing. No, no. So you you basically just took potluck each night. Then you didn't book ahead and think, right? I've got two hundred miles to do today to get to this next um, stop. No, I didn't book ahead. I had a I had a plan. Um, a, fa- a fairly detailed plan about how far I wanted to get every day. Um, and largely I stuck to that plan. But what at about six o'clock, when I was writing at about six o'clock every day, I would just go on to booking.com on, on my phone and just see, you know, um, what hotels were there about 60 to 100 kilometers ahead of me, because I knew that I could do an extra maybe 100 kilometers would be an extra four hours um, riding so that that will probably be the the absolute limit because i would be getting there about midnight uh generally i was trying to stop at about 10 o'clock so would be just looking ahead at what um uh, you know, what were where were their they good sort of hotel options and by and large in fact every day i could could find somewhere on the route pretty easily I've, you might have listened to the podcast i did with james recently about did, doing yeah. the loop and you know we talked quite a bit about the, the training he did and the fact that he was limited in how many miles he could get in each week due to work. And I, I think, you know, I've worked with folks who've rode across the Atlantic, um, who've done Land's End to John O'Groats and, the, and done Marathon to Salvin. The biggest concern is how am I going to get the miles in? I need to be running 100 miles a week. I need to be rowing this much. You're never going to be able to replicate the severity of the event. And then you've got to balance that out versus fit it into your life, et cetera, et cetera. How many, how many, I'll start again. How much did you change your training in order to prepare for TCR? Uh, a little I didn't bit change, or not at all? I, I, didn't, I didn't really change my training significantly. What I did do was a couple of, I would say, what do you call, you know, key training rides. So I, um, in, in May, um, and so TCR was the end of July. In May, I, rode for non-stop on Zwift for 24 hours just to see whether I could do that. And that was genuinely non-stop. That was just you uh, eating on the bike, you know, seeing seeing how far I could get. Um, and, and there was actually a real purpose in that because I'd been having problems with my feet um, after riding, say, eight hours. And I'd been trying lots of different solutions to how could I fix this problem with pain in my feet. And so I knew that I needed to do like a really, really stupid ride like that. And, and I don't think I could have ridden 24 hours outdoor. So I thought, right, I'll go and do this and just see how does my how does my body cope with that? How do my, my feet cope with that? And actually, I and what it told me was that I'd actually found a solution for the, the problems of the, the foot pain I'd been having. And uh, the other key ride I, I did was I spent a... Um, a, a long weekend doing part of the route um uh, through the through the swiss alps and so cycled about oh 500 kilometers 
maybe 600 kilometers you know, over a weekend cycling, some ridiculous amount of elevation. And so, and that was about four, maybe five weeks before the, before the event. So those were the two, I think, unique um, bits of riding I did. Other than that, everything else was um, absolutely in line with my, with my normal triathlon training. So I was still swimming. I was still running, still riding. I you know, like doing that, that mix. I, you know, I don't think that trying to do extend your, your riding really for, the, for this type of event is really going to help. What you need to rely on is uh, 10 years of base building that I've been doing. You did Ironman Wales three weeks after finishing that. What did you do? Um, does that mean that, bear in mind what you've just said, that you carried on with your swimming and your running during your TCR preparation, so then you were able to just slide straight into Ironman Wales, assuming you had decent recovery? Yeah, that was the that was the plan. Um, and Ironman Wales was, um, the, was actually one of my best Ironman experiences ever. And, and I... I, I I did Ironman Wales three weeks after finishing TCR. Uh, I hadn't recovered. I mean, the my I found that my um, as long as I kept my heart rate below about 150 beats per minute, that everything was was normal. But then, as soon as it went up, it, then it was like everything would just like completely fall apart. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't. I'd lost all of the top ends, you know. Um, and so I thought, okay, you know, I'll go and do Ironman Wales and uh, I'll go and have a bit of fun on Ironman Wales. I've put no expectation on myself. I'll go and uh, go nice and easy on the bike, bike and, you know, just, just enjoy the experience. Um, and, um, and, and, I, and I was having, and I had a, a pretty good bike leg and I was a little bit surprised about the the course in Wales I mean you look at the overall elevation and you think okay what's it 2700 meters that's not too bad yeah it's 2700 meters up 12 percent slopes and Mm -hmm. you know maxing out at 20 percent and and then the descent you don't get any recovery on because they're like technical descents down narrow roads so it's like not the type of riding that I've been doing a lot of it's like riding in Yorkshire actually I think um Mm -hmm. but I had a you know I had a you know I enjoyed the the bike in Wales and then I was went out onto the run and yeah I wasn't wasn't running particularly fast but it's a you know, Wales, you go up a hill and then turn around and come back down the hill. So it's difficult to compare your pace. And I was um, coming up to the, and if you know Wales, the turnaround on the last lap mm-hmm. um, at, the, at the top of the hill. And one of the, the spectators shouted at me, you're 30 seconds behind the podium place. I thought, no, that can't possibly be true. And so the, the last six kilometers were the were the only time in the, the when I actually pushed mm-hmm. pushed myself and yeah, and I managed to get the third place in, in my age group. Um and and actually had a fantastic time. And I look back at it and think, you know, there's probably three races where the race where I would describe I had the perfect race. And you know, and a perfect race is where you did where I did as well as I could possibly have done. There was not a single thing that I would change in in the way that I approached the race, and and Wales was one of those one one of those races. So I, I had a really good I had you know a really good experience, and it was interesting being limited about not being able to push. I you know, I on the bike I physically would not have been able to push 
So mm. I had to limit myself. And that just meant that I was, you know, had a pretty good bike leg and had a pretty good run. It was just very, very consistent. I've noticed what you, personally what you, what you mentioned there about not having that top end. It's not like you don't have the top end. It's just if you push up to that, your muscles flood with lactic acid straight away. So you've lost the ability to um, to recirculate it around your system, haven't you? And then it seems to be debilitating for much longer in that process. Um, I also think that what you're saying there is that when folks say, oh, you, you, you need to do some high intensity to do a good Ironman, actually, if you do a lot of zone one and zone two work, you can still go pretty well um, because that's mostly what your Ironman is yeah. going to be about. And certainly controlling that zone one and zone two and not going too hard um, is probably, for most people, is probably the key to a good performance. Yeah, and and that's probably the the difference between a pro and a, and a good amateur. And you know, you know, and, you know, I got a podium place in an Ironman. That's not you know not a bad result. And that was just on, as you say, zone one, zone two. You know, a pro couldn't do that. A pro couldn't get on a podium by doing that type of you know taking that approach. But uh, you can get a podium in an Ironman as, as an age grouper uh, by taking that approach. Ali Hollington, um, who was was is married to Ken McLaren, moved to New Zealand, um, won her age group in Ironman New Zealand and qualified for Kona several times, only been able to do zone one and zone two training because of previously diagnosed heart problem. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> S- seemed, to, seemed to work for her. Um, one thing I've forgotten to ask you about, Matt, is um, prior to you going to Kona, but after you'd qualified, um, you were training for your summer's racing, weren't you? You had quite a significant bike crash, but and then quite a remarkable return from a nasty shoulder injury yeah so that, that it was so i was um in what was it 20 2021 i went just over nine hours in roth nine hours 11 minutes inside i thought right 2022 my focus is going to be like going sub nine in in roth um and training was absolutely brilliant i was in like the form of my life and the last training ride, it's always the last training ride, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The last training yeah. ride, two weeks before. Um, and it's a loop that I know really well. Um, on my TT bike, I was absolutely, was setting personal best all the way around this loop. And um, I got a slow puncture on the front tire on a, on a descent. And I went into a, you know, a hairpin bend pretty fast because it's a bend I know extremely well and I was mm-hmm. on fire and the front tire just rolled off the rim and you know I, and yeah I came down about 40 miles an hour 60 kilometers an hour I can look at my Garmin um and I um got a, got a, a I tore the um uh, the AC uh, ligament in my shoulder uh, so it's a, a grade three was a complete um, tear of the, mm. of the ligament um, and dislocated my shoulder. And so the I went to see, a, you know, the, the shoulder specialist saw me the next day. And, um, you know, I, I said, you know, so what, what about training? And he said, well, you know, you've completely torn the ligament. He said, once the swelling goes down, you can't do any more damage to it. So he said, you won't be able to do very much, but, you know, you, you know go, go ahead. And so I was... Pretty much straight away, probably three days later, I was you know out back in the pool trying to work out a technique to say, could you know, how can I actually swim? And I could, I didn't have any power, but I could actually get a range of movement and could 
keep my shoulder in a reasonably efficient swim position. So, uh, and then I decided, okay, well, I'll still go to Roth. I'll still see what happens. Yeah. And I lined up. So this literally 13 days later, lined up on, on the start line in, in Roth and, um, um, and, you know, decided, yeah, okay, I'm definitely going to race. And so I, I went and, you know, did the race and the, the swim um, wasn't too bad. It was an hour and 20, so about 10 minutes. Well, I was probably 15 minutes slower than I would have been before the crash on the swim, but it was still a, you know, a, a surprisingly good swim. And I found that, you know, on the TT bike with the, with the arm pads, I could support my shoulder mm-hmm. reasonably well. So it wasn't putting stress on, on my shoulder. It wasn't, I won't say it was comfortable, um, but it was I still manageable. And then the the run was probably the hardest thing because the weight of my arm pulling on the shoulder that didn't have any mm-hmm. any connection at the top of the shoulder was uh, was a bit painful. But so it was a you know it was an okay run, and I so I still managed to what nine hours forty five I think in with a uh, three weeks after sorry two weeks after sort of um, dislocating. Um, dislocating my shoulder and you know. are you still getting problems with your shoulder now then no i'm i'm not getting my my shoulder's okay um it's so the the the, the shoulder specialist said you know we can you can wait and see you know um the the problem the problem with surgery on on the on the shoulder would would be would be immobilized for six months mm-hmm. um and then there's that you know then there's a question about how much muscle loss do you get and particularly at mm-hmm. my age at you know 50 are you going to rebuild that muscle how much reduction reduction in mobility so there seems to be a bit of a, a you know two opinions and one opinion from the shoulder specialist is well you know leave it and see if the muscles compensate and uh, you know provide that strength that you need and if that works then you know go with that and, and try and avoid the surgery. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. Um, I think it's not quite as strong as it was in the past, but it it all seems to be working at the moment and it's a good excuse for not swimming fast enough. I mean, you're not, you're not going to get a perfect solution to a, um, a ruptured ligament, are you? Yeah. You're going to have to have a compromise and having the surgery, the compromise is losing muscle, losing six months of activity because you can't really, you can't swim. Although when I broke my collarbone, I, I was able to strap my arm to my side and kick on my side and do some one-arm stuff, but it's not perfect. You can't really run. You can't ride your bike versus carrying on with life, and but then having a shoulder that may be a little bit weaker. But, you know, that those are really only your two options. And, um, well, what works for you, I guess. Now, yeah, it's, uh, well, I'd say I'm not sure I would recommend. No, and, and, and apparently my my case has been talked about by, at various conferences. By the, and I was actually I should there was a missing part of this. The, the soldier surgeon was a very very accomplished triathlete, so mm. he he knew um, you know what I what I was doing and trying to do as well, which which helped. But I think my case has been discussed at various conferences in the uh, in the last two years. And of course, if somebody puts on that they've separated the shoulder now and they've got this rupture on Facebook, um, th- there'll be loads of people saying, well, uh, two weeks after doing this, you know, Matt Spooner did that, but you probably wouldn't be recommending that course I'm of action not, without. Uh, I'm, if somebody, I would not say, oh yeah, I did this, so therefore you can do it. I think you've yep. got to look at every case. I had enough mobility that I could get in a good enough position on the swim. You know, so there, there were... 
I, I think you've just got to look at everyone as individual and definitely not say you know, everyone should try and do this. What I'm really interested in now, Matt, is you've talked about these amazing performances that you've had and you're continuing to improve on the whole. Um, you've talked about you know, doing that transcontinental race with a very sort of sensible strategy. But in order to be consistent with your training and obviously turn up for work and give your best there as well, um, and be the best, you know, father, husband, etc. Uh, I'm interested in what you, what actions you take to support all of this. What What do you do around your sleep, around your nutrition, around your recovery time to make sure that you can turn up in the best position and the best place for everything? Well, I, I just, you know, I think as I've got older, I've realised how how important sleep is and how important good quality sleep is. Uh, and probably the biggest improvement on fitness devices is actually you know the the fact that that the Garmin now tracks your sleep and tracks your sleep quality. And um I can really see how um and, and it, you know you can see it in the figures and you can also feel it in in your perception. Um how much nutrition and alcohol you know affect your affect your sleep and so what i find is that if i um you know don't eat too late if i avoid uh ultra processed you eating a lot of ultra processed foods um uh i can really see and i avoid uh, avoid alcohol um i you know i i do like a drink i particularly like a beer but you can see just the impact of two beers mm. that it makes on your on your your sleep quality on the the the, the way that that you know and I don't know how accurately the Garmin measures it, but um, what's important I guess is comparative that if you if you it's measuring it in a consistent way and if you have two beers you can see the metrics whatever they mean look worse and if I don't have two beers then the metrics look much better and so. Um, I'm really sort of this. I think has become a, a really um, a, a real eye opener for me, um, and I'm I'm not a big um, big fan of the you know, fad diets, and everyone talks about them. What's the latest diet? And it, you know, my my focus is um, really you know I would say my primary thing is about avoiding ultra processed food. Um, and uh, you know, I I have shi- I have shifted a lot more, partly because my wife and my wife is vegan and my daughter's vegetarian, so we generally don't have very much meat in the house, and um, so I eat a, a lot more of a plant based diet. Although I still eat meat if I go out, I don't have any you know, particulars of uh, anything against it. But I think the main thing is about sort of um, uh, trying to eat you know, very much uh, you know, a. Uh, uh, a whole food diet and avoiding processed foods. I think I'm with you on the tracking. Um, I used a whoop still have a membership, but I've not used it for a while. Um, and I really like that to start with. Then I found that it was actually having a negative impact on my sleep. Cause I was thinking, Oh, if I don't get the right sort of sleep tonight, then my, my whoop data is going to be corrupted. So I've really got to focus on this. And so I stopped wearing it, and of course, I felt like my sleep improved because I just was more relaxed. And I'm, and I had been questioning the quality of the data, and the same with the Garmin. I think the Garmin, Garmin's, you know, the Whoop and the Aura Ring are great for 
they're designed for measuring sleep, but they're not so good on tracking your exercise levels. So there's some inaccuracies and Garmin and Sunto and some of those other trackers are designed for doing the athletic uh, pursuits and at sleep and everything else is an afterthought. So I'm not sure about the accuracy of the data there, but I'm totally in agreement with you about what you can see in, in comparison. This is what happens when I don't drink. This is what happens when I do drink. This is what happens when I drink beer versus red wine. This is what happens when I drink early in the evening versus just before I go to bed. These are the things that happen if I eat late. And you can very definitely see a negative impact of those behaviors on your sleep. Um, and that creates behavioral change. And for me, those are the most powerful benefits of having any sort of tracker is the, is the positive behavioral changes that come around. Yeah. And uh, I, I think tra- trackers, trackers, uh, what's more most important is just looking at the at the at the trends as opposed to looking at the absolute numbers because I, I'm not sure I believe the absolute numbers and you know, no. at all. But um, what I'm looking at is the, the, the what are the, what are the trends that you're seeing? And the other thing about having about sleep um, and I, I, I don't suffer the same as you. I, I don't think oh if I do this then I'm you know I, I don't get any anxiety about it. I sort of, I, I look at it retrospectively i don't you know it, it it doesn't cause me any stress thinking about you know, how is my sleep sleep going to be um but i do notice that if i sleep for um again good get a good night's sleep how much it makes a difference in training the next day mm. and, you know you can your training seems to be a lot more effective so yeah i, I think sleep is well there's more and more research that shows how important sleep is I've yet to come across um, anything where having more sleep, better sleep is made worse, not better. You've got a very similar philosophy on sports nutrition to me, haven't you? I think um, that it has its purpose, but um, there's a lot of marketing hype as well, which we need to fight through if we want to get the real benefits. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's, <laughs> yes, I, I, the, the, the sports nutrition, I, you know, I, I'm, convinced that there's an awful lot of hype in the sports nutrition industry and not a huge amount of science. I know several professional athletes who actually confirm this perspective and they would never ever say this publicly because of you know sponsorship commitments or commitments to to events. But it's a, it's um uh yeah. gels I think when you're racing and taking in carbohydrates are important although i think you know dan had a, a an interesting perspective on that last week as well um but the the whole yeah I, i'm probably going to get a whole load of comments about this the the whole pre the pre-event post-event um you know all of these sports supplements that, that people are taking i mean we're, we're trying to they're, they're trying to, you know, our, our bodies, in, in my view, are actually, have created over evolution to create the perfect balance in terms of the, mm-hmm. the amount of minerals and salts and amino acids that, that we actually need to take. And actually, body is very, very good at getting them in the, in the right balance, making the right compromises and the right trade-offs. And by taking supplements, you're trying to hijack those trade-offs and saying, oh, actually, we want to go and get this impact. And maybe it has a positive impact on some aspect of your racing or training, but there's a corresponding negative impact as well, um, which I think is we we don't think about. So I would rather sort of like say, 
okay, I don't necessarily believe the science. So I, I'm just going to avoid you know the as many of these sports supplements as, as possible because I'm just I'm just not convinced. I, I do a fair bit of work with the folks at Precision Fuel and Hydration. And I think one of the things that's come out of that is that sports nutrition products are a tool like your Garmin watch, like your power meter, like your heart rate monitor. They're a tool to help us in certain situations. And like every tool, you need to have a strategy for getting the most out of it. And so if you invest the time to work out what's the right strategy for you, which is what the PF and H guys are really good at, um, you can do very well. But if you're not cooking yourself a meal and you're just going straight for an energy bar, I feel like that's just a lazy alternative and actually we'd get far more benefits out of eating real food. Yeah. Um, anyway, let's see what responses we get to that, Matt. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned that you travel quite a bit. You go to conferences. Um, one of the things that I have found with a lot of the folks I work with to be quite intrusive on the training is, is travel, business travel, staying in hotels, not having your familiar training surroundings, but also um, linked in with the sleep aspect we've just been discussing is time zone changes. I noticed that you mentioned specifically that you have a you have a well developed strategy now for helping you to mitigate and offset some of those. Can you can you just expand on that for me? Yeah, so so um, it it would is very easy to get you know when you're travel think get obsessing oh I, I need to carry on with my training routine I don't want to lose the, this this training you know my view is that when when I travel I, I just want to maintain I want to minimize any losses I'm not going to make any gains when I'm when I'm traveling in terms of my fitness but I can do things to to minimize losses and so particularly if I travel to to North America. Um, you've got the time zone and that can actually work for you because it means that I'm awake at five o'clock in the morning uh, and I can go down to the gym and do some, you know, zone two, uh, zone two work. Or if I'm, you know, depending on where I am in, I can go out for a run. So I ask the hotel, do you have any you know, running routes? And quite often they can, they'll give you a map of various running routes. Um, and it's a good way to explore the city. And I find that that, mm -hmm. Doing that sort of like one hour of exercise in the morning is actually a really good way to help you adapt to the, the time zones as well. Uh, mm. it, it helps me get into, into to tune with those. Um, and I also, you know, when when I when you're traveling, there are you know corporate responsibilities, you've got corporate dinners, and yeah, and I'm not disciplined enough to not drink half a bottle of wine when I'm going out with uh you know, colleagues or, you know, you know, people at conferences. Uh, but I still make sure the following day that I'm getting up and still doing that, um, uh, you know, that, that routine in the gym just to try and keep things ticking over. So the main thing is, you know, and another thing that I do is that um, sometimes I'll stay in a hotel, which is, you know, a half hour walk from a conference venue. And rather than going getting an Uber or a taxi in the morning, I'll go and walk to the you know that that half an hour, uh, and, and it's you know strategies like that to say okay, you what can you do to maintain uh, yeah. as opposed to lose fit you know and not lose fitness. I've taken the steps now with some clients to have a look at where they're staying in the city, try and see if we can help them to find a hotel that's near to a park or um, a river yeah. where they can go and run there. Um, near a swimming pool or with a swimming pool if possible 
and if it doesn't have a very good restaurant, what restaurants we can find, you know, if they're a vegetarian, are there any vegetarian restaurants locally so that they at least can um, have a little bit more option rather than that, just eating yeah. the hotel food? But it just requires a bit of advanced planning, doesn't it? That's a really good point, actually. Uh, I avoid trying. I avoid eating in the hotel almost at all costs. It's, it's a, try and find somewhere. Try and find somewhere local. You get much better food. Uh, it's cheaper, and you, know, it, you you get out and you do walk mm-hmm. to a you a bit of exercise. Yes, I completely agree with with all of those strategies. I I do the same things. Look for a park. Look for a place next to a park. Just mm. somewhere where you can can get out and and do something something i learned from some people in the military is the uh, the floor that you sleep on as well um i know a lot of the um, u.s military have this thing about the safety and security of their personnel so they they try to sleep on the third floor and at the end of the corridor which means it's usually near a fire exit if there's any issues but it's also away from many people transiting past your hotel room because you're at the end of the corridor so there's less disturbances and you're above that area where your room is going to be at risk of getting broken into because you're not near the ground floor. So I've now started trying to help people look at the what's the best room and floor to be on if you want to get a quiet night's sleep. Yeah. Um, you know, all, all little things, aren't they, that, that can just help with the disruption that you find from sleeping in a strange room in a strange, yeah. strange venue. And being on a third floor actually is a good one because you can then use the stairs. You don't have to use the lift to go up to your room. <laughs> yes, it doesn't quite often work in New York, does it? When you've got a 50 floor um, yeah. hotel and you're on 40, 49th floor, you're going to get very, very fit there. You wouldn't, go, you wouldn't need to go and find a park to run. No. <laughs> Let's talk about the final thing. You like to share your stuff on Facebook, but I know you share this in the business setting as well. Some of your strategies and the links between um, staying fit and you know the mentality needed for triathlon performance and the links in business. Can you just expand on that a little? Yeah, so so I, I'm I'm pretty fortunate in my in my job that I that I get to talk in lots of conferences. Um, and it was something I realised a, a couple of years ago that you know that um, a lot of the strategies that work extremely well in in sports. Uh, particularly as you get into the ultra distance uh, and in business are are actually really really similar um you know in you know in business we do a lot of you know training for example um uh, you in sports we need to you know we need to stay in business we need to stay on top of current trends um we need to have in sports we need to have really clear set of goals um and in business, you also need to have, and this, and I actually think that this is really missing in, in a lot of business. You need to have a really clear set of goals, but those goals need to be achievable. So in sports, I I, I can say my goal is to get a podium in mm-hmm. uh, in, in an Ironman. You know, I couldn't have a goal. I'm going to beat uh, you know, Alistair Brownlee. That's, you know, that's a wish. That's not a goal. And I think you you have the same thing in, in business. We have to set, set these realistic goals mm-hmm. and we need... And then we need to have a strategy to achieve those those goals. So just because I want to become a you know, get a podium in triathlon, well, actually, I need to go and work out how I'm going to get that you know, mm-hmm. podium and what's my strategy and what are those milestones that are going to get there. Um, 
And, and then you know, beyond the strategy, then we talk about planning and about how do you plan the, the, the strategy and then about how do you execute that, that strategy. And when it comes to execution, you must see this as a coach. The best plan in the world, you can't always, things happen mm-hmm. and you can't follow that plan. And it's exactly the same in business. Um, I find that it makes a, you know, it makes a much more interesting conversation. It makes a much more interesting presentation than most of the business presentations that you see in in, in conferences. So that's why I use it. But actually, I think it, it's something that um, that I think really does work. And it's why a lot of top sports people and elite sports people actually go on to become pretty good business people as well, because mm. they, they just apply exactly the same uh, you know, what they what they were doing when they were an elite, you know, training to be an elite sports person. Yeah, have, have you talked about periodization in work and um, the cyclical nature of you know uh, different industries and how that um, interacts or relates to the periodization that we use absolutely. in training for an event? Yeah, I, I, yeah I, I, absolutely, and the that that's that's one of the. That's actually, that's actually a really um, the, the whole thing about periodization is it's really important and very very relevant in business. And I think that what what happens in business is that you get particularly at the middle management levels you get this huge pressure to like work fifty hours to be your best all the time and to be the you know, the best performing mm-hmm. company. And, and you end up with corporate exhaustion. You end up with mm-hmm. your employees getting completely exhausted because they're training, they're running a business in zone four, you know, day in, day out. Mm. You can't do that. And so it's, it's the same with your know, periodization. You need to have some periods, you know, the, the, with the periodization, you know, um, where you're doing that, you know, building up your bench strength. And then you've got your other training periods where you're focused on mm. the, um, uh, you know, on increasing that 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 top end and you know, the you know, training in zone four. It's in, and and for me, that's completely relevant to business as well. I find if you're working with folks in the corporate accounting world, often, world often January is a time that's absolutely packed with getting company accounts ready for the you know reporting process at the end of the month. And so if you if you're an athlete as well, training for training for anything meaningfully during that period is very difficult because your focus is going to be elsewhere. So yeah. we try and we try and design the training to just let's back off here. Let's just do some maintenance stuff. But equally in the corporate world, if if the end of January represented your big race as an athlete in, in an accountant's world, it might represent your big presentation. Then after your big race, you would have that relaxation time, wouldn't you? Period of recovery yeah. when you just take stock. You maybe ease back a bit. You go home early, and um, you take a long weekend, and you allow yourself to recharge, ready for the next build-up. Um, I don't, I don't think we do enough of that. And like you say, the athletes who've come from that high-performing world that are able to then translate that into the business will do very well. Yeah, and 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 just you know, again from what Dan Dan Plews was talking about last week, you know. He had his focus on triathlon last year, and the business took a back seat. So mm. he was maintaining the business and ramping up the training for, for, the, for the triathlon. Now he's going to be focusing, I think, on the business and building his business side, and his focus is, uh, you know, on, on training is now slightly slightly different. It, mm. you know, so I, it's a, you know, how he's mixing those two, I think, is a really good example. Um, 
where you know I think athletes can have a lot to contribute to the to the corporate world. Mm. Well, Matt, it's been a great conversation. Thank you. We've we've come around very quickly to what I'd sort of set as our time limit. We could carry on, but I know you've got the rest of your day to be getting on with us. Um, you very definitely fall into the category of what I would call a high performing human um, as a, as a as an individual and as an athlete. So, thank you for sharing all of those. Uh, learnings and lessons with us and and your wisdom and uh, yeah appreciate you being here yeah thank you very much it's been a really enjoyable conversation and uh, hopefully the um hopefully you know, people will find some things that i said were useful i i do hope so um thank you matt i'll see you out there on the start line somewhere thanks thank you again to matt spooner for being my guest on the show this week as we've heard with some guests in previous episodes it's amazing what you can achieve if you're willing to say no to a lot of things and prioritize that which is really important in your life if you haven't already heard or seen them please check out my new bite-sized podcast episodes which are released every saturday these are approximately 10 minutes in length and i'm sharing insights on some very specific topics and you can find links for those in the show notes Please make sure you do check them out because there'll be a lot of the stuff that I've mentioned today in there as well. Now, if you could share this episode with one person who you think could benefit, that would be awesome. And if you've got a couple more minutes, maybe you could leave me a review on your chosen platform. That's all for this week. I'll have another great guest in seven days' time and I hope that you'll be able to join me. And in the meantime, please remember to have a check out of those bite-sized episodes on Saturday morning. Have a good week.